Click, listen, enjoy. Broadcasting live worldwide. Thank you for tuning in to Talkline Network Radio, America's longest-running Jewish broadcast network, the voice of the Jewish community. You're listening to Talkline with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981. Welcome back to the program. I'm Zev Brenner. Very pleased to have with us Alicia Wiesel. He's a philanthropist, American businessman. He worked for Goldman Sachs for a quarter of a century. Currently, uh, he is the chairman of the floor, but he is also the only son of Holocaust survivor, author, professor, Nobel Peace Prize recipient, Ellie Wiesel. Alicia, it's an honor, a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you for joining us. Zev, I'm glad we were finally able to do this. We've been talking about it for a while. For many years, so I'm glad we're finally here. So I'm sure everybody asked the question, what was it like growing up in the household of your father and Marion Wiesel? Uh, you know, I would say not easy in the early years. Now, of course, I say that from a position of incredible privilege. I mean, what experiences I had, what people I got to meet, um, I got to see the world. Uh, I got to see my parents with the most influential people uh, doing what they could for Am Yisrael. So, of course, that was all an amazing privilege. But I will also tell you, not easy to go to yeshiva for 14 years uh, and, you know, be in that shadow, as you might expect. So being in the shadow, what impact did it have on you? How did it play out? Look, when you're uh, you know seven years old and you're in the, uh, the the playground talking with your friends, what does your dad do for a living? Oh, my dad, uh, you know, used to be in the Israeli Air Force. Now he flies LL planes. Oh, my dad, you know, he makes people feel better. He was uh, he's a pharmacist. Um, my dad, I'm not really sure what he does, but I know something really bad happened to our family. Um, you know, that's what kind of being age seven was like, not having a ton of context, understanding that. My father was a teacher, an educator, a writer, simply knowing that there was this terrible thing that happened and it loomed over our family. But on the other hand, you got to meet, as you said, some very influential, very important people from all walks of life. Of course. That must have been but exciting. That was obviously very exciting. But, uh, you know, when my uh, friends were going to the baseball game and uh, I was flying to Poland to go visit death camps, you know, at age nine or 10, I will confess to you that I missed that sense of American normalcy. I wanted to, you know, throw, uh, have a catch with my dad and, and throw something on the TV and, uh, and do things that felt normal and American. I really yearned for a, a normal American life when I was much younger. Was it pretty much all Holocaust all the time? No, I don't know about that. But, you know, there was a lot of French in our household. Um, there, were, there was a lot of uh, European influence. And, uh, you know, it was, um, yeah, there were many, there were many, there was always something happening in our home. Our, uh, our Friday night dinner table was quite the salon. I can imagine. I don't, I, I think probably the depth and the breadth of people that came to it must have been fascinating. Did you, uh, can you maybe name drop some of the people that you came across over the course of time that came to your Shabbos table or just in general came to your home? Yeah, I'll never forget that, um, you know, I remember Francois Mitterrand once came to our home, the president of France. Uh, you know, that was a pretty big deal. Uh, I remember Moshe Dayan coming and uh, us having to turn the house upside down to get ready for that. Um, so there was always uh, there was always something exciting going on. 
Now, you, for their audience, not only did your father was a famous Holocaust survivor and author and professor and very well respected, but he came from a Hasidic background as well. And your father was a little bit mystical too, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. You know, it's interesting. So many people think of him as a human rights figure. Um, but, you know, some of the, the most amazing works I think he wrote where he really got to speak the most from his, uh, from his soul were The Souls on Fire, uh, Hasidic Masters. Um, you know, all of, he loved Hasidic stories. And for those who got to experience him lecturing at the 92nd Street Y, that material was almost exclusively uh, Hasidic material and stories of prophets. And my father loved going deep into those. Did you ever have visits or go visit Hasidic Rebbe's in the course of time? It's a great question. The only Rebbe's that I remember visiting with my father, I remember that we used to visit uh, the person he considered to be his Rav, Shaul Lieberman, um, you know, in Jerusalem. And again, I was very, very young. And I also remember us going to visit Rabbi Louis Finkelstein uh, at his home. Uh, but those were the only two Rabbanim I remember us going to visit and see. You know, I think that, you know, you have to remember when my father married my mother, he was not... Um, he was not as observant as he became later or re-became with my birth and my bar mitzvah. So I think, you know, my mother uh, married someone that was much more of a modern intellectual who happened to be Jewish and clearly cared about his studies, but the intellectual, you know, dominated. And therefore, I think, uh, you know, whatever negotiations were worked out on what was the color around our Shabbos dinner table, we typically had more intellectuals, more diplomats, more journalists, and really very few Hasidish folks coming across. Um, or, or, or rabbis in general, from what you're saying. Or rabbis in general. Now, would you say that a similar pattern, you also were involved where you, at a point in time, because of the intensity of your home, and listen, all kids rebelled to a certain degree, that somehow that you took a different path because of that? Um... Gosh, I don't know. It uh, it just seemed like I needed space. Space, right. And, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I was very fortunate when I was uh, – I received a gift from my bar mitzvah present. And this was 1985, mind you, you know, long before all of us were on the Internet nonstop. And I received a modem from a friend of my parents. And I plugged that modem into my computer, and I started going to visit all these bulletin boards. And then I found these boards where you could chat to people real time. And all of a sudden, it was like life woke up for me. I had access to people who weren't going to my yeshiva. I, had, uh, I was learning about new music. I was learning about new ways of thinking. I was interacting with people who didn't have the same background that I did, um, people with different skin color, people with different orientation, people with different, from different class, um, you know, whose parents were blue-collar workers. And it was uh, very eye-opening for me. I made a ton of friends, some of whom I'm still close with to this day. And in many ways, it was a lifeline. I felt that I had been drowning, um, you know, where I was. Because you went to Ramaz, I guess, that you want to do things that perhaps, you know, you couldn't do at that time, right? In Ramaz. Yeah, or, or it's not even so much a question of couldn't. I just didn't even know they existed. My, my concept of what was out there in the world was, you know, much lower. I think what I remember from my time at Yeshiva is, you know, there were a couple of things that was acceptable to be involved in. You could be into sports. Um, you could be into your academics. Uh, you could be, you know, artistic and, and want to make music or, or play an instrument. But um, the thought that there was this incredible American culture of the 1980s sort of unfolding around us 
uh, and that there were subcultures buried within subcultures. Like that to me was fascinating. And once I got a taste that there were different flavors of culture to be had, I was, uh, I was sold. I wanted more. Now, one of the things that your father championed, of course, was preservation of the memory of the Kedoshim, of the holy ones that perished in the Holocaust. We live at a time where people throw about the Holocaust in different countries, and every time there's an atrocity, they use the term Holocaust. I was curious to get your reaction when you hear that term used so often. Listen, you know, my father was always very sensitive to overusing the word, but he didn't want it. Um, at the same time, he was extremely sensitive that there were real moral crimes still being committed, and he wanted us vigilant and to be outspoken against them. So on the one hand, while I think he had a very strong reaction to the word Holocaust being overused, and there is no doubt that it is overused and misused, um, I think at the same time he wanted the energy level high to be on the lookout for where social justice was needed. But here's the interesting thing. On one hand, you have people throwing about Holocaust and saying everybody who's a racist, a Nazi, who have that terminology thrown about. And on the other hand, I find that there are a lot of people, including in Jewish day schools, that don't really know either about the Holocaust or know enough about the Holocaust. Well, the stats are, are, are staggering, right, in terms of how many, you know, what percent of American youth of, the, of millennials know uh, you know, what Auschwitz is and, and what it represents and what the Holocaust is. Somehow we're falling over as a country with regards to Holocaust education. No, and, and even in Poland, my daughter, when she was in, went to visit the crematoria a number of years ago, there were people using anti-Semitic slurs about the Jews right in the middle of the concentration camp. I hadn't heard that. Yeah, so it happens. You have people who are anti-Semitic, and there is the symbol of it. And the question, though, is what can we do to get more awareness about the Holocaust? Well, listen, you know, various states are pursuing their own programs to put mandatory Holocaust education into the schools, which I think is fantastic and, and, and well-conceived. Um, you have things like the Elie Wiesel Genocide Act that was passed by the administration uh, I believe the year before last. Um, so you do find legislation, you do find legislators who care about this and find ways to make it part of the national consciousness. Did you ever consider writing a book or doing a lot of speaking engagements about your background, about what you observed over the course of time? I'm doing more speaking engagements. I think a book is not in my current plans. Um, but uh, I've been doing speaking more. I realized when my father passed that there was a big gap, not just for me, but for many people, that he represented something and that his voice represented something. And if in some small way, by accepting speaking engagements here and there, I can help people continue to think about him and remember him, then it's, uh, I feel it, it's my pleasure to do so. Now, I know that after your father passed away was another phase in your life. And it certainly, I, I think from what I've read, you came to appreciate some of the things that your father did, even though it was all-consuming growing up, as you mentioned. And uh, But I think once he passed away, it changed your attitude somewhat where you saw a different side that you didn't see beforehand. Look, my father was an amazing man, and I, um, in some way we talked earlier about, uh, about the privilege that I had growing up and what you appreciate, what you don't appreciate. My appreciation for my father just increases all the time. And... I realized what an incredibly strong man he was, 
not just to survive uh, the Shoah, but also in how he comported himself in daily relationships. Uh, you, me, all of us, every single day we find people who seem hell-bent on annoying us, irritating us, whether it's with their viewpoint or their manner, or they want our time, or we can't get their time. Human interactions are full of so many frustrations, and I've never met anyone who somehow rose above that in such an inspiring way as my father. My father would you know, wait until the very last person at a, at a line of people after he spoke at a lecture would come up to him to either sign a book or hear their story. He made everyone feel recognized. And if someone wasn't treating him well, my father would be dignified about it and find a way to move on with his day and with his precious time. And it's such a reminder to me now, the more I think about my father's manner, not just what he stood for in terms of the Shoah, but just my father as a mensch, my father as a, as a human being, how he moved through life and how he moved through human relationships. Uh, that's something that I'm, uh, I'm always going to appreciate and aspire to. I always love hearing your father sing, especially Yiddish songs or, or Hasidic songs. It was a special treat to hear him do that. It's interesting. You know, you, uh, you asked about my father after he passed, how I felt and my father really only asked me to do two things in life. One was to marry Jewish, and he made that ask you know, relatively early when I was starting to date as a teenager um, and as I was moving to college and the relationships were getting more serious. And then the second ask he made already when he was sick with cancer, um, you know, a year or two before he passed, and he said, Alicia, I want you to know, in case there's any questions, I expect you to say Kaddish for me. And I hadn't really ever thought about it or, or really known what it meant. And it began a real process for me, and I only realized later that this was not a gift that he was asking me to give him. It really was, in many ways, the last gift that he could give me, asking me to do this. Explain how that, what that means. It's beautiful. Maybe you could just amplify that for those that haven't gone through the experience of saying Kaddish. Listen, you have to realize, shul for me, I was a you know, three-day-a-year shul Jew. I went to Shul uh, both days Rosh Hashanah, and I went Yom Kippur, and I only went because my father was there, and I knew that he expected me to sit next to him, and I would sit there, and to be honest, I would often bring a book, and I'd hide it in the machzor, and it had to be a small enough and slim enough book, and you know, my father knew I was doing it. He had certain standards. It had to be a serious book. If I brought uh, Plato or Descartes um, you know, or uh, Jorge Luis Borges, you know, those were acceptable. I couldn't bring uh, just a standard fiction thriller. Um, but if I brought in a great work that would inspire me, I would read it next to him, and that was my life, three days a year in shul. And all of a sudden, my father passes, and boom, every single day I'm in shul. I'm finding a minion. I'm saying Kaddish. I'm actually learning how to daven for the Amud. Um, you know, I'm learning how to lead a service. And you know, for me, that first Friday night when I found, uh, I found a Chabad in particular, and, um, and I'd never heard... Yedid Nefesh. I know it sounds amazing. Like, how, how could I have grown up not ever having heard that? I'd never heard the Yedid Nefesh. I'd never heard the Nigun. I'd never really felt that I was uh, part of a community or a shul that was just all about the davening. And uh, I sort of found my place. And in that Nigun, all of a sudden, I felt that my father was still with me. And that makes you even more connected with going to synagogue, which is now regular. I've seen you in different shuls, so that becomes a re it became a regular part of your life now. It's absolutely become a part of my life. And, you know, whether it's on Shabbos morning, getting the chance to dive deep into, you know, each Parsha and maybe read ahead a little bit, or, um, you know, we're blessed that we, uh, we sometimes ski upstate and we have a community up there when it's not 
COVID, uh, when, when COVID isn't happening and we're able to, you know, we run our own minion. We have my dad's Safer Torah and uh, we get we get laning in. We're able to daven uh, on Shabbos. And it's amazing. We've, we, I've seen what a Torah and what a shul and what a service and what committed Jews can do in creating a sense of a community and bringing people closer to Yiddishkeit. Our guest is Elisha Wiesel. He is the son of the legendary Eli Wiesel of Blessed Memory, who was a Holocaust survivor, author, professor, Nobel Peace Prize recipient. Elisha himself is a philanthropist, businessman, who is carrying on that thought and the keeping the memory of the Holocaust alive for all of us. Hi, this is David Gabay, and you're listening to The Zev Brenner Show. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please become a fan of Talk Line with Zeb Brenner on Facebook, LinkedIn, Google Plus, and YouTube. On Twitter at TalkLine Network. If you have an Android phone, please download our free app in the Google Store. For iPhones, download the Jewish Radio app. Of course, tune in 24 hours a day at TalkLineCommunications.com for nonstop Jewish broadcasting. Tweet us now. You're listening to Talk Line with Zev Brenner. America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981. And we're back. Alicia Wiesel is our guest philanthropist, son of the legendary Ellie Wiesel of Blessed Memory. We're taking some of your phone calls at 212-769-1925, extension 100, 212-769-1925, extension 100. You can email us, zevbrenner at gmail.com. Alicia, before I take some phone calls, your name, full name is Shlomo Alicia, but you like calling yourself Alicia, correct? That's right. With Shlomo, who was Shlomo named after? Shlomo is my father's father. Father, father. Okay, let's go to Abe in the east side of Manhattan. Abe, just lower your radar. You're on with Alicia. Go ahead. Go ahead, Abe. If Abe's not there, we're going to go to the next caller. Abe, are you there? Abe, your, your turn with Alicia. Go Hello? ahead. Yes, Abe, go ahead. Yes, I was great listening to you, uh, Alicia. And I'm sure it was uh, not easy to be the uh, son of a celebrity, and he certainly was. I just wanted to say that, that uh, many times I daven in Fifth Avenue Synagogue, and I literally sat right behind your father, who sat all the way to the left in the front row. I, I was sitting uh, in the uh, seat behind him in the second row in the corner, and he was just a gracious, elegant, wonderful gentleman. And anybody that had a question, he'd always greet them with a smile, very cordial, very, very, very sweet and sophisticated. So I, I basically wanted to ask you uh, what happened to his uh, his Foundation for Humanity or whatever the name of that great organization was. I know they had some trouble. They took a hit, and he was raising money for it again uh, in Boston. But it, does it still exist? Thank you, Abe, first of all, for your comments about my father. He loved davening at Fifth Avenue Synagogue. He loved Cantor Yossi Malovani. He uh, loved having his friends around him. Uh, with the Barnetts and the Wolfensons behind him, all sorts of, uh, it, was, it was a great crew. Uh, my father's foundation, the Elie Wiesel Foundation for Humanity, is still very much alive. There were two major planks to its programming. My father and mother used to organize conferences on big topics, the anatomy of hate, uh, what to do about violence in the world. But they also started a programming center for Ethiopian Israeli children uh, in the towns of Kiryat Malachi and Ashkelon. Uh, in Israel, and those programs Beautiful. are still thriving. And in fact, we are uh, actively looking to grow and perpetuate their future. So thank you very much for uh, for asking about that. I, I applaud you, and I applaud the foundation, because 
we we're in uh, Lisa and I are in Israel many many times, and uh, uh, certainly we have neglected the Ethiopian Jews. We take care of them somewhat, but not enough. Put it that way. My mom is, uh, you know, it's interesting. My mother really is the uh, the one who drove most passionately for taking care of this segment of the population. As someone who came to the United States it, really just after World War II, she was shocked to discover that racism was a thing in the new country just as much as it was in the old country. Unfortunately. And being, passionate, being a passionate Zionist, I think, you know, she marched in the civil rights marches here in the South. She uh, carried the NAACP card. But she was 100% committed that Israel, to the extent possible, should not repeat the mistakes of the United States. And with this uh, people arriving with a different skin color and so much beauty and hope and promise, she felt very compelled to do what she could together with my father. And they named the centers after my father's sister, who perished in the Shoah, Zipporah. They yeah. created these big Zipporah centers to, uh, to deliver this promise to this population. Beautiful. Okay, thank you. Thank you for your time, and keep doing your great work, and I'm sure you have beautiful memories of your pop. He was a wonderful gentleman. He really was. Thank you, Abe. Thank you, Abe, for really a good call. We appreciate that, and uh, we'll continue taking your phone calls right now at 212-769-1925, extension 100. Okay, let's go to Forest Hills. Go ahead, Stan. Uh, hello. Good evening. Good evening, good Stan. Evening. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to ask you, I have a two-part question. Uh, you, you know that Jonathan Pollard was released and is now in Israel. Did your father have a view on this situation or what Mr. Pollard did? Did he think in the long term he should be released? What was his views on that situation? I don't really remember many conversations. I certainly overheard... Um, you know, one or two conversations at different times with uh, people trying to persuade my father that the experience that Jonathan Pollard had had in the U.S. prison system was extreme and out of proportion uh, with the crimes that he had committed. But I, I don't know more than that about my father's involvement with Jonathan Okay, Pollard. that's all right. Now, the second part is much more lighter. Could your father have a real good laugh, a belly laugh? I mean, did he have a great sense? Of, I mean, could he laugh out loud and have? A, did he like going to see comedians, or did he? Do you know what I'm saying? Did he have a good be belly laugh? It's. It's. I'm so glad you're asking this. I was just talking about this today with my wife. Um, my father used to like sitting with me in the evening sometimes and actually watching All in the Family. <laughs> I remember that show. Really? And Archie. Archie. Archie Bunker could make my father just you know crack up, laugh out Even loud. with the racist um, overtones. He, you know, he, he saw America through its, its very clever writing, poking fun at itself and, wow. and progressing important issues through the tools of humor uh, and drama and the concept that here is this person who clearly is a racist but right. has a heart and can be educated by his family and those around him. Um, my father loved that show, and, you know, he loved the producers, you know, even, uh, you know, the director. I was just going to ask you about that. Love the producers. One of his look, his all-time favorite movies um, were usually the ones where the Nazis got it. Like you know, he loved uh, uh, Guns and Navarone. I think was his oh, that's great film. But um, but movies like the producers, he he could have a laugh with the best of them. Is My that right? Because be I would very... think he might have been a little more sensitive to the to the movie, or you know, not like the, it because the way they made it. Well, you know, that type of thing. You know, it's it's my father had a good sense of humor if it was intended in good spirit. Um, he didn't like humor that was out to belittle people or, or make them feel less. 
Um, but humor that was intended in good spirit to, to, to lighten the burden. My father loved a good laugh. Anyway, Stan, for a good question, Stan. Two good no questions. Okay. Yes, no problem. Okay. Uh, let's go to Susan in Rockland County, New York. Go ahead. You have a question for Alicia Wiesel. Hi, Alicia. You know me more as Marsha Shana. I was your first great ah. teacher in Vermont. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to talk to you again. Wow. Yeah, I, I saw you once a few years ago to Hassan and I, we said hello. But I it's remember. really great to hear you um, and the religious odyssey that you went through. Um, I remember you and Kita Aleph as a regular little kid. You were a little shy. You were a little shy. But I do remember your father coming to your place. He came to the, uh, what is it, the model theater at the sitter play, wearing his dark glasses. Maybe he thought nobody could recognize him. I don't know. <laughs> do you remember he used to wear his sunglasses when he'd go places? And... Um, they were very proud of you. I met him. Your parents were once at a Pesach program where I was working, and uh, I spoke to your parents who were sitting outside by the pool. And uh, they liked the influence of the first grade on you. They thought you were doing very nicely. They're very proud of you. And uh, it's just a pleasure for me to hear you speaking so eloquently, and what a wonderful person you've really, really developed into following your parents' footsteps. And I just wanted to say hello. Wow, what a, what a thoughtful message, and thank you. And, and first grade, I had not yet gone off the rails, so I'm sure they were very appreciative that you kept me on them. Wow. And I know Susie. She used to host the radio show for us in Rockland County. So, Susie, good to hear your voice again tonight. Wow. And I know Susie. She used to host the radio okay. show for uh, us Okay. Anyway, uh, thank County. you for your wonderful call. We appreciate that. Thank you so much. It's lovely to hear from you. So before we break... Did, did your father ever voice disappointment, especially at leaders in the Jewish community or certain things that were taking place that he felt should not be happening? That's a very sort of open-ended question. Is there something specific to which you're referring? No, but I'm just wondering because sometimes people get frustrated, you know, because, you know, you have different Jewish groups and some duplicate each other. And there's a lot of infighting in the Jewish community. And to a certain degree, I would assume if you're a Holocaust survivor that you'd like to see more unity. And unfortunately, we have a lot of infighting, unfortunately. My father was always the one defending the person under attack. So if there were attacks flying, whether it was wow, we can't believe the rabbi gave that sermon. What was he thinking? My father would defend him. And he'd say, no, you have to understand this is how he approaches the topic and here's what you're supposed to learn from it. If there was a complaint about a Jewish leader, typically my father would be on their side. My father understood that, the, uh, that leadership is difficult and was almost always sympathetic to the position that uh, the folks were in. And what about on human rights? I know he spoke out. I remember Bitburg, obviously, and lots of other cases he spoke out. Um, did he sometimes get flack for certain positions that he took? I mean, sure. I think that, you know, after Bitburg, he was pretty much cut off from the Reagan White House. But look at how my father executed that and what a model for us today as we think about how do we convey uh, disagreement without it getting so personal and judgment of character. How do we how do we return to examining actions and decisions as opposed to always assassinating character? My father went out of his way to not show disrespect to President Reagan and his staff. Really, just to the very last moment, wanted to keep conversations private, did not want it brought out into the public if it could be avoided. Um, you know, even if it meant lowering his own platform, he sat there and, you know, originally that, um, that award ceremony was supposed to take place, I think, in one of the wings where three, 400 people could be seated. And because my father made very clear that he wanted to talk to the president in private, he wanted to talk to him about Bitburg, they slowly, slowly, you know, lowered the platform to a lower number of seats. 
Um, and my father was willing to do that because it wasn't about the size of his platform. It was about finding the right channel to communicate with respect and actually exchange ideas. Well, what he say to the current political climate and the way people talk and the tension between, you know, groups of people, Democrats, Republicans, the whole public discourse is terrible, terrible today. Listen, we've 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 lost our way. And and I think it's very easy to blame social media, because I'm sure that 40 years ago you could sit there and blame the television set or you could blame the radio 80 years ago. And I think this concept of blaming technology, I think it, it's um, it's very convenient. I think we also have to take a look at what examples we're setting for our kids and how we interact with other people. And whether we do that digitally or whether it's face-to-face, -face, uh, what is the standard we're setting? And we make mistakes. And when we make mistakes, do we, do we own up to them and do we try and do better? Um, so I, I don't want to say I think it's convenient to just blame the social media platforms, although I do think they have some responsibility. I think it's convenient to blame uh, you know, President Trump when he was certainly... Uh, you know, pushing our, our concept of what was acceptable speech uh, and acceptable comportment, um, you know, appropriate, but also somewhat convenient. I think we have to look within uh, within each other and within ourselves and do better. Our guest is, just for a little while longer, Alicia Wiesel. He is a philanthropist, American businessman, the son of the legendary Elie Wiesel of blessed memory, who was a Holocaust survivor, author, professor, Nobel Peace Prize recipient. Like us on Facebook. Talkline Radio and TV with Zeb Brenner is just phenomenal. Everybody concerned about the Jewish community should listen and watch. He has the best guests. He asks the most interesting questions. He's always so well prepared. It's talk radio and television from a Jewish point of view at its very best. To advertise on the Talkline Network and Talkline's email and social media blasts reaching over 70,000 people, please call 212-769-1925, extension 100. That's 212-769-1925, extension 100. Or email info at talklinenetwork.com. Talkline Network Radio, America's longest-running Jewish broadcast network, the voice of the Jewish community. You're listening to Talkline with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981. We're back. Our final stretch with Alicia Wiesel, son of the legendary Ella Wiesel, bless of memory. Let's squeeze in one last phone call. Let's go to Manhattan. Dr. Larry Briskin, go ahead. You have a question or a comment for our guest. Yes. Well, my closest contact with Alicia and the family was through my, my daughter, Alicia, who was a classmate of Alicia's at Ramaz. My mother was much closer to uh, your mother uh, than I was. Uh, but uh, going forward, um, from your experience growing up as well as on the college campus, what do you feel should is would be a, the approach that we have to take today with the uh, ongoing with the the increase in anti-Semitism uh, in the form of anti-Zionism, so, uh, anti-BDS, and the and the developing denial of the Holocaust itself? How are we to deal with that as Jews? Thank you, first of all, so much for calling in, Larry. I remember Elise very well. Um, it's a great question you ask. It might, in fact, be the question. How to confront BDS on college campuses, anti-Zionism. Uh, I think that somehow anti-Zionism has become part of the intellectual de rigueur on college campuses, and it's fashionable to ignore 70 years of history 
it's fashionable to ignore that you know Israel is a country which has tried repeatedly to live in both peace and security and at all times be rebuffed um, by frankly uh, uh, neighbors who you know have indicated that they don't want to see us exist now I think that we have to find ways to um, continue to engage we have to continue to engage at all levels we have to show that we are committed to the concept of peace the moment it becomes possible I think that that has to become part of everything we say and everything we mean and the moment that we lose sight of the goal being peace alongside security we will sound like like hawks and people are not going to want to associate with us because who would and I think the truth is that we are a peace-seeking people and that has to come out much more clearly even as we defend based on facts and based on history that we have a right to be self-determining in our ancient homeland. Henry, Larry, thank you for your phone call. You know, it's nice, uh, Alicia, that we're getting some, I guess, down memory lane people calling in. Nice. Yeah, but also some provocative questions and some important ones. Important ones. Question for you. Your fa- one of your father's most famous books is Night, and the English one came out was a big hit. But from what I understand, there was another version of Night, I believe in Yiddish, which was a lot harsher, a lot more uh, graphic, more depictive. So what's the status of that? Will that, ever, that version ever see the light of day? Listen, my father made very conscious choices during his lifetime on what he wanted to publish with regards to specifically to his Holocaust experience and with Knight. And my father made a decision that he did not want to publish that version of Knight because I think he felt that the one that ultimately was released was the, uh, was the, the what he wanted to share, was, was his perspective that he felt he wanted to share with the world. And I think every author has that right. Look, it's, um, you know, in the same way that, uh, that people panned Harper Lee because they hated Ghosts at a Watchman. Well, you know what? She did not decide to publish that. She felt that for whatever reason that piece was lacking and did not represent her thinking and she didn't choose to publish it. And then someone went and published it effectively against her will and she got attacked for it. So I think authors have a right to determine not only what they write but also what to publish, how to publish, and that should survive into their estate. No, I understand and I respect that. I was just wondering if that, did he ever want to publish at some point in the future or he just put it away and it's there not to be published ever? My father made a decision, as far as I can tell, not to publish it. Um, You know, I think uh, my father also was very clear with me that he never wanted to see a movie adaptation of Night. Um, You know, he really felt that the work that he had written, that was his testimony. And he didn't feel a need to revise it. He didn't feel a need to share other versions of it. And he didn't feel, uh, you know, any comfort with someone else uh, taking artistic liberties, uh, particularly in the motion picture world of of re-showing and retelling that. He wanted people to read the words and for people to form the images on the inside of their own minds and to react um, from a very real place to it and not have someone do that for them. One of the reasons why we have you on the air tonight, when I've been talking for a long time and we really appreciate you joining us, is a tribute that's taking place this week for your mother's 90th birthday with some important celebrities and personalities. So tell us about it. Listen, thanks for asking me about that. It's my mom's 90th birthday. It's going to be this Wednesday night. And, uh, you know, my mother did not want the spotlight all on her. She was very insistent, if you're going to celebrate my birthday, especially on some virtual platform, we better make some good come out of it and, and not have me just be at the center. So we are fundraising for my mother's charity, Beit Sipora, which serves Ethiopian Israeli students in Israel. It serves uh, almost 700 children. 
and uh, the event is going to be on baitsipora.org. That's https colon double slash b-e-i-t-t-z-i-p-o-r-a.org, baitsipora.org. The show goes live at 7 o'clock on Wednesday night. We have an incredible lineup uh, with some of my mom's friends. We have Idan Reichel performing. We have George Clooney, Oprah Winfrey, Mayim Bialik introducing different segments of video documentary about my mother. I think it's going to be a really fantastic evening, uh, and we'll get a lot of good done. No, and I urge people, 7 o'clock Wednesday night, go click on. You really have a very, very special night. Did, was your father opposed to having a movie made about him in general, or just about night in particular? I don't know that he was opposed to having one made about him in general. I don't think he got that far, but he had very strong views in particular about night. He wanted night to, be, to continue to be read as it had been written and as it had been published and shared. If there was a movie, who would like to portray your father? <laughs> George Clooney? or <laughs> <laughs> I don't know the answer to that question. Anyway, I, w- I want to thank you for being here with us. Really, we appreciate you joining. We hope you join us again. Continued success in your endeavors. I know that it's hard juggling and going through what you did, but you are the voice. You're carrying on the voice of conscience that your father embodied for so many years. So Shagan should give you and your mother uh, strength for many, many more years to come. And thank you for joining us here on the TalkLine Network. Amen, amen, and thank you, Zev, and your listeners for keeping Jewish Radio going. Thank you, Alicia Wiesel, here on the TalkLine Network. Thanks for listening. TalkLine Network Radio, America's longest-running Jewish broadcast network, the voice of the Jewish community.